Greetings, dear listeners. We had the writer Nick Burns on the show this week to talk broadly about American exceptionalism. What is it about America that's so different, that allows it to succeed, and more importantly, that frustrates attempts to make it more, quote, European? From high-speed rail to the university to foreign policy, European ways of doing things never quite work out the way people think they should. If you're not a paying subscriber, join us at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and get access to part two of the conversation, where we discuss the problems of realism. Stick around for me and Shadi going at it over human rights, with poor Nick caught in the middle. On to the show. I, I suspect that won't be the case. Anyway, Nick, uh, as I was saying uh, right before Shadi just logged on here, it's uh, it's really good to have you on the show. Um, you were one of the sort of, I think, um, the best young writers that, that sort of, uh, I, I wouldn't say we discovered you. You came to us. I don't even know how, how you came to the American interest, but I, it was really a pleasure to publish you towards the end of the magazine there. And then with COVID, I, I feel like uh, I, I, you know, it's COVID, the magazine shut down. I, I, I lost track of you and your writing. Um, and it's, uh, it's with great pleasure that I, I, I rediscovered it in the last few um, uh, months, noticed that you're, you're still out there writing and thriving, really. Um, and so, you know, I, I think what, what, what triggered having uh, you on the show with us was um, – an essay of yours that you wrote recently uh, on your Substack uh, that really, you know, I think Shadi referenced it in one of his essays for Wisdom of Crowds. He and I have like talked about it and we've been just talking in general. It's an ongoing theme uh, here at American Interest about American sort of, Interest. Uh, uh, Wisdom of Crowds. <laughs> <laughs> I meant to say at Wisdom of Crowds, it's always been uh, a, a American exceptionalism and sort of, I don't know how, how, you know, despite all of the sort of um, self-loathing that, that um, uh, especially sort of overeducated, Europeanized American elites um, dis- sort of uh, exhibit all the time, how, how nevertheless, you know, there's, um, uh, there's something about America that, that uh, is, is difficult to pin down and um, is, is a source of its kind of endless, restless you know, uh, greatness. I mean, you just can't ever bet against it. I think your essay just captures that beautifully. And we'll, we'll link that for, for listeners who, who may not have yet, um, gotten to it. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, you know, I think there's plenty to talk about, but just, uh, wanted to, to, you know, use this as sort of like a, a broad, uh, uh, set of remarks to just encourage readers to get to know you. And hopefully we can get to know you a little bit in this conversation. Um, Basically, I guess let's just maybe talk about America first. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about like how did that how did that how did that essay come about? What were you what what drove that essay? Yes, yeah, so I was. Um, I've been. Um, uh, or I had been doing a little bit of inquiry into cultural developments in New York City, um, and going to strange parties and talking to strange people. Um, what? Like like Curtis Yarvin, right? Am I, am I, am I, <laughs> yes, I, I saw that was. somewhere. You were at some party with Curtis Yarvin, yes. the big neo reactionary thinker. Just to get get un like reader uh, listeners not plugged into the into this to know. Yeah, you were at a party with Curtis Yarvin. I don't know if he's neo reactionary. We can just take out the neo. I don't know. Like reactionary makes me think the French Revolution. <laughs> I think neo is right. That's his. <laughs> anyway, um, go on. That's Nick. his. Uh... Uh, his term, right, is uh, neo, neo yeah. reaction. Um, yeah, I um, hopefully we won't get too bogged down in in uh, you know uh, who went to whose party in in New York City. I was reminded by very many people um, after a piece that I wrote about um, these uh, New York cultural scenes uh, that New York City is not the same as uh, the United States of America. Um, mm. Uh, which is, which is true. Um, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I actually, um, it's not the first time I've, uh, 
been at the same gathering as uh, as Curtis Yarvin. I've never never spoken to him, but um, he's been haunting various get-togethers in uh, in DC um, and I'm sure a lot of places. But I first uh, ran into him in DC, and it's it's interesting. It's it's something that um, uh, the author of the Substack where you probably saw that mentioned that I was at this gathering. Um, Mike Crumpler, uh, uh, Mike or Crumps is he's often known, uh, Crumps and I, uh, have both talked about, um, how it's strange that a lot of the same kind of cultural fascinations, um, including a fascination with the writing of Curtis Yarvin, uh, that were very popular in DC during the Trump years, uh, are now popular in certain downtown Manhattan circles. Um, interesting. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, uh, the center of, uh, the, the cutting edge of, of reactionary thought has moved from, from Washington to New York in that time. And it was interesting. I, I just want to yeah, go ahead. I just want to jump in. It was hilarious about that, right? It's just like living in DC so much of my life. And at this point, it's always been the fact that that DC is about a year and a half behind New York. It's great that in something we're 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 actually leading, and New York is following, even if it is that like the, the <laughs> fringiest of Trumpist neo reactionary thought. Anyway. Yeah, it's a strange um, it's a strange thing, and in some ways, it kind of um, made me not quite. It made me a little behind the curve in some ways. That, um, for example, um, some like a you know the Red Scare podcast hosts were talking about Christopher Lash um and and Lash kind of had a moment in you know um uh in <laughs> in certain circles in New York where people don't you know really read books very frequently um too busy going to parties but um he kind of had a moment uh, people would were like posting him on Instagram and stuff um in like I want to say 2020 or so um and my reaction after, um, you know, being in D.C. when all of the kind of, um, you know, all of the cool young center right, um, cool that is in D.C. terms, which is to say <laughs> massively uncool um, in New York City terms, uh, were reading Lash. And, and, and that, that whole kind of Lash mania had started to wane, I think, by 2020 in D.C. Everyone was kind of sick of Lash. I wrote an essay complaining about Lash um, for Law and Liberty um, in 2019 or 2020. And um, then it had this sort of whole second second iteration um, it, among very different people. And, and it confused me at first. I was like, didn't we already do this? Um, and the problem is that, you know, it was a very different sort of we who were doing this as in talking about lash it was it had become popular again in a basically totally different circle of people um and yeah. i mean to, to 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 just like narrow down though you, the the interesting thing about your writing and about this essay um is you know i to not get like lost in the in the sort of the 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 intricacies of sort of neo-reactionary stuff and how that's like switched over to new york is is this sense in the essay, which I really liked, is that that um, how do I put it? Uh, I don't know if it's a, maybe even a, a kind of tacit response to both the kind of self hating of the I call it the the you know the, the cool set of of uh, lefties in New York, the the sort of red scare people, uh, or that kind of like ironic self loathing of America, but also maybe a rebuke to the kind of you know right-wing like modern right-wing doubts about america there's something what i liked about the essay is that it had a kind of um well again for for readers uh, listeners who haven't read it yet i mean it it it, uh it 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 uses a book that you found by uh the french postmodern philosopher uh baudrillard who's himself traveling across the united states and making observations about this kind of restlessness of america and I've always found that kind of writing about America to be most, uh, I think, uh, persuasive and interesting. And it's something that I think Americans themselves are are least likely to remark on. So I don't know. I mean, when you're writing that essay, what was the, what was it? Was it a kind of reaction to pervasive pessimism about America, about how people on both sides, well, both sides, on all sides, or, or at least maybe even like a, a broader pessimism across America about America. Was that sort of the, the, the impetus for it? I think the, the impetus was, was sort of, um, it came about because I was trying to persuade 
other people and also kind of persuade myself that it was worth um, sort of following, at least to some extent, um, uh, cultural developments um, in New York City and also in American pop culture generally uh, that I that I don't necessarily um, always sort of want to have to pay attention to. You know, I I mostly, you know, review books and um, I cover Latin American politics for my day job. Um, And uh, I don't always, you know, want to think about, um, you know, sort of uh, fashion trends or for that matter, avant-garde cultural developments in weird internet subcultures or um, hyper-specific, you know, New York City cliques or or what have you. But um, as I was reading this book by Baudrillard, which has so many sparkling comments, um, I became convinced, as I think he tries to argue in the book, that um, these kind of manifestations of American culture, um, even if they can be grotesque, um, are in some ways kind of world historically significant. Um, and, uh, the tendency to reject them as vulgar, um, isn't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of totally not based on anything. It, it makes sense to, to want to sort of reject them as, as, as vulgar or, or, or something that's not sort of, um, uh, you know, suitable to sophisticated taste. But it, in the end, it, it, it can kind of leave you in a bad place because um, it's those grotesque developments that are going to take over the world. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's some great line in, in the book that I quote in the Substack piece that um, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something to the effect of, uh, you know, we, and he means in Europe, you know, are a long way behind the, like, absurdity, vulgarity, and stupidity of American culture, its mutational form. Um, and uh, it made me think, uh, and this is also in the piece, but it made me think of, you know, being in, you know, these uh, cafes in Paris or uh, whatever European capital, and they're playing music that, um, you know, uh, that's sort of like indie rock from, um, you know, from the Obama era stuff that has been considered kind of uncool in America for years. And people in New York like to make fun of the French for being obsessed with Williamsburg, Brooklyn, when, um, uh, you know, everyone who uh, would like to seem to be kind of in the know in New York City, you know, has thought that Williamsburg is kind of cringe for, uh, you know, for a decade or something like that. Um, So it was sort of um, an attempt to uh, describe why it might be worth it to pay attention to these developments, even if they seem, you know, uh, silly or, or irritating. Um, but, um, in some ways it's, it, it's sort of an argument with myself as well, because, uh, um, I, uh, I think a lot of people think of me as an Anglophile. Um, and I, I would say that I have a very sort of ambivalent relationship to uh to england um uh maybe a less ambivalent more positive uh sort of uh image of southern europe and latin america um but um but nick let me so i mean uh, yeah um just to jump in um so i i think just to get down to what i think the fundamental question that you raise in the piece is and what we can talk about some more is that you're actually making the case for america i mean you you debate it with yourself you're having this argument with yourself like many of us do and then in the end you conclude that america is in fact better i'm paraphrasing but um I think the tension, and this is what I liked a lot about your argument, is that on one hand, you're basically saying that America sucks in a particular set of ways. So in (laughs) other words, America, it's not pleasant to live in America. It is, however, pleasant to spend time in Italy um, or or, um, or Spain or France in the sense that it's more relaxed, leisurely, people have long, endless dinners, they're not rushing to respond to emails for the most part. 
they're trying to enjoy life and work isn't as central. Making money isn't as central because simply put, Europeans don't have as much money. I mean, Europe is still, Western Europe is still poorer than the US um, in, in terms of GDP and GDP per capita. Um, so uh, so that's, that's one side, that's the dark side. And so then um, we might conclude based on that, that if you really care about pleasantness, if you want to live a pleasant life where enjoying life is at the forefront, Western Europe is probably the better place to live. But then you do a little U-turn where you say, despite all that pleasantness in Europe, you'd still, you still want to be in the U.S. And it's a, for a very interesting reason. And it's one that I'm a little bit confused about because it's somewhat intangible. But basically, what you seem to be saying is that what's great about being in America is that it's it's the center of everything, as you sort of alluded to earlier, and that there's some sort of satisfaction that comes from being present at the creation. That's the phrase that you use. Um, and and I, I but it leads me to wonder, I mean, I sort of agree because, I mean, I think America is the best country in the world. And, you know, in my in my Monday note where I cite you a couple of weeks ago, I that's how I that's where I come out that for all of its faults, America is still great, greater, the greatest, whatever, um, because there's a mess. It's it's messy. It's contentious. There's conflict it's um it's unwieldy and that's actually where the creativity and the innovation comes from that you can't have creativity and innovation without a certain degree of messiness and being all over the place um like a jackson pollock painting i think that's how, what i what i said <laughs> in a previous episode um but how about this i mean what does it mean to to be at the center of things because that seems to be very very um central to your argument um but what is like that's not tangible though like how do we measure that what does it feel like and maybe a lot of people don't care about being at the center of things yeah i mean it's an interesting point of course a lot of people probably don't care about being at the center of things um and um and it seems fair to say that uh america isn't um you know, isn't for everyone in the same way that, that any country, I suppose, isn't, isn't for everyone that, that you have to have a kind of, uh, certain disposition to, um, uh, to feel at home there. But most countries have, um, uh, ways of raising people to, um, give them the kind of, uh, dispositions that would make them enjoy life there. Uh, like I think, a lot of things about American society are set up to encourage people to um, like the things that are available in America and not um, not crave the things that that aren't so available, uh, like you know uh, spritzes on the piazza or uh, whatever um, uh, you know whatever we we want to sort of choose to describe that that European pleasantness that I tried to get at in the essay. Um, as for what it means to kind of be, um, you know, present at the creation, I think um, uh, what, something I've been thinking about recently is how American states uh, still kind of function as these interesting, um, you know, the cliche is laboratories of democracy. Um, but in a way, there's there's truth in it that, um, uh, you know, that. As, as an interesting thing about having a country that's extremely large, um, but in a certain sense, culturally homogeneous, everyone speaks English. Um, and you know, there's no, um, uh, there, there, there are relatively few sort of bureaucratic and really sort of strongly cultural obstacles to moving from one part of the country to another, you know, unlike say Canada, you wouldn't have to learn French to move from Vancouver to Quebec, although I don't think you really have to do that, um, despite all the laws that they're putting through. But you know, you you wouldn't you wouldn't feel any pressure. You wouldn't be missing out on anything if you you know moved from uh, you know from Santiago de Compostela to uh, you know 
part of Catalonia where most people speak Catalan. You can, you can, you know, you can sort of uh, move anywhere. And the states, um, you know, especially in, in recent years, uh, have been trying to sort of attract people with a kind of, with different political ideas, right? Um, uh, DeSantis in Florida, uh, Texas, trying to kind of draw migration from, uh, you know, disaffected Californians or people in other part of the country with kind of uh, different, inter you know, with, with a very sort of, uh, you know, kind of freedom-loving politics, um, uh, you know, low taxes. Uh, it, it's interesting that, you know, I, I can't think of uh, another country in the world that has this kind of open competition. That's a competition um, of kind of contending like models of politics in a way. Um, it's, it's, mm. it's in a way, I mean, it's a funny place in a way it's very, um, homogeneous and that can be a little, um, it can kind of get you down a little bit. Um, but in an, another way it's, it's extremely heterogeneous and it's inexhaustible. Uh, so, so I, I'm sort of still thinking through all of those. All of those I, I like that a lot. Cause I've never thought about it. I, I I would have maybe assumed that there's at least one other country that's sort of like us in this regard. But I think you're right. There isn't a single other country in the world, to my knowledge, that has open competition between um, subunits and also the ease of transportation and and, you know, changing your residence and so forth between states. That does seem to be pretty unique. Um well, ease of, ease of transportation, I, uh, you know, we were joking last episode, or not joking, just sort of riffing on Matt Iglesias' uh, recent uh, sort of tear on Twitter, uh, to, you know, comparing how shitty, is, how shitty Europe is compared to the United States. But then today, I think he just, he, he published uh, on his Substack, uh, you know, uh, an attempt to do positive appraisal of Italy, um, having just got, come back from vacation there. And I mean, on, on the transportation, he notes correctly, you know, I mean, that's the one thing you do notice in Europe is how, how easy it is to, you know, get from one part of a country. And these are all much smaller countries, of course, but still it's, it is more pleasant to get around. It's kind of, kind of sucks to get around the United States. And even now air travel is getting so hideous in this country too, you know, like, I mean, they first through, uh, making, uh, air travel affordable it's it's become downright hostile to do it and now after covid it's it's a real okay, I just i guess admittedly yeah. well taken i guess i just mean like moving from one state to another and using well, your yeah, one can move yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. so core, yeah I the mean, core of the point is that it's um it's 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 not i mean there are plenty of countries that have um uh you know cultural differences within within their borders right um most countries have significant cultural differences uh, within their borders, especially countries that are kind of older um, than the U.S. or not in the New World. Um, you know, there are huge differences between Northern and Southern Italy, between you know Scotland and England, etc. Um, but that makes it a little more complicated to have kind of direct political competition, like contending political models within within the state. Right? right? It is because those political models adapt themselves to cultural differences. Um, right. I also had, uh, um, I've been thinking about this, uh, I, I haven't seen his latest, um, positive take on Italy. Um, I've taken some Italian trains, which are quite useful, but I, I will say that, um, uh, I rode to Pompeii from Naples on, uh, a train that was more thoroughly covered in graffiti and thoroughly, um, kind of decrepit, uh, um, than, than any I've seen on the New York city subway, um, by mm. far, of course, um, of course, I that find that Southern Italy though. That's the thing, right? I mean, that's the other oh, part. Yeah. I find that Southern all Italy is, yeah, like, um, I don't, I don't right. mind it as long as it gets to the destination, but, but, but um, you know what they say about trains? Uh, Mussolini made them run on time. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought you, you guys would just be confused when I said that. But um, this is why. But I was going to make a joke about how do you know? Do you really want to have trains running on time? Because we saw how that worked in you know World War Two. You know, I mean. Well, you know, you know. I let me just add a a, a funny thing. This is. Um, 
I, I'm trying to think if we actually ever put this in uh, in um, uh, in the American interest and Walter Russell Mead was doing via media, but it's something we talked about a lot. Walter has this theory that um, the surest sign of like modern um, declinism is when uh, elites start talking about putting high speed trains <laughs> everywhere, that it's such a boondoggle. That it's really difficult to, you know, do. They're never economical. They never break even. They're just a suck on 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 resources. And so it would be just a thing. It's like, you know, the Chinese are boasting about their their high speed trains and and uh, and then, you know, all the sort of Europhiles and, and, you know, sort of technocratic elites in America like, ooh, China's ahead of us because they have high speed trains. Walter would be like, no, this is the end of China. They, but they, they're wasting money on high speed trains. I don't know. Well, that's but that's an interesting <laughs> hot take. I mean, as a yeah, as a sizzling, it is. I mean, as a Californian, um, I you know I don't even care if it's high speed or not. But I cannot believe you just want to train. I mean, I can believe it. I can believe it. Unfortunately, but it is it is a scandal that we cannot manage to build a train that goes between San Francisco and Los Angeles. Okay, but Nick, that's that's exactly right. I, I remember now you're bringing it back to me. We would always focus on you know uh, on the plans of, of of sort of you know progressive Californian uh, you know urban governor saying we're going to build this thing, and 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 you're right, like it's it's un, just like it's not doable. And you know it 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 gets to a different question, which I think is is I think lurking in your piece, and it's it's lurking in, in other stuff you've written. Right? Is is that it's 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 largely this this uh, idea that, well, you know, I've been to Italy and I've been to France and their trains are great and the Chinese are getting high speed trains. We need high speed trains, too. And 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 maybe it's it's merely cultural and political, but maybe it's also just the scale of the place that it just doesn't make sense. So it's this it's this constant desire to emulate the European as some kind of advanced thing. Um, that that leads us to down these sort of blind alleys. Maybe there there are better solutions for California than building a high speed train also, between who, San Francisco who are these pe- who and are LA. These people who are like dying to like take the train on a regular basis from San Francisco to LA. I mean, this is like catering to a need that is non-existent. Like if there w- Nick Burns, I, one. I I went to school. You know, I went to college in the Bay. I'm from Southern California. I. Uh, um, I would I would love to take a train. I like uh you know, I like watching the countryside go by. Uh, yeah, I'm it's taking nice. a train it would to be... Vermont in a few weeks and I'm very excited to just look at some trees for for a long exactly. time. You're you're putting your finger on it. It would be nice to have. It would be pleasant. But it would, would it be, be economical? Would it actually I mean, be good? I mean, in California, <laughs> perhaps not. I mean, because I mean, the problem in California is um, I, I feel like it, I, I, you know, uh, I'm sure this will be um, taken up by the the you know urban policy and transit experts and on you know the the, the transit expert crew on Twitter or what have you. But I mean, my my impression is is that it's basically kind of a class. The class thing is that California is totally dominated by uh, car owning homeowners and um, hmm. uh, it's kind of a car owning homeowning, you know, uh, kind of middle class uh, and a kind of increasingly numerous but still quite politically marginalized kind of underclass that that, um, you know, that that doesn't own homes and doesn't own a car and um the uh you know the the fact that most people um who are middle class and above you know wouldn't use a train because they have cars means that there's just not uh not a will to construct these things and that you know the public services the public transit services that do exist um uh you know buses and um the subway in la has gotten a lot better but um, you know, they have problems with ridership and they have problems with safety um, because everyone in the middle class and above doesn't use it. Uh, it's, it's, it's... But, but but right. You know, like so the, the traditional then then, you know, plaint of all of us, uh, you know, Europe lusting Americans is is uh, goddamn Eisenhower and his and his highway project 
and, uh, you know, making Americans wedded to cars. And you see it now with with all the, you know, green talk and climate change is I just saw an article in the FT was saying, uh, you know, Europeans are tightening their belts and learning how to conserve while Americans, you know, feasting at the pump or something like that was a was a title. And there's a lot of problems with that article. But, um, you know, the 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 flip side of it, of course, is and this, again, gets a, a something about America is that it's always been about space, about having your own land and your own thing, right? Absolutely. Which is very different from from an overcrowded, overcapacitated Europe. Um, and and as a result, you know, you can you can say like, goddamn Eisenhower, but Eisenhower was doing the the will of the American people is is opening up the country. So in fact, there's the opportunity for everyone to be able to have their own house. Right. Now you might say this is this is you know against the planet and evil, and but it's American. It is like the most quintessentially American thing. So it's fair to say what you said right there about California. It's dominated by you know people who have houses and cars. But like that is America. Oh, it's not just California. It's it's people having houses and cars. Yes. Right? Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, I'm. This is a point I think I'm often making. Um, is that. Um, you know, uh, it's it's the view of the kind of, uh, you know, Yimby squad, uh, as you say, that, that Eisenhower doomed us with the highway system. But the fact is that the car is kind of quintessential uh, piece of American technology. It's, it's a piece of technology that is just made for Americans to love. It's everything that Americans love about things. It's property. It's uh, movable. And it um, is kind of atomizing uh it's it's individualistic it's um a little self-contained bubble that you can own if you have money and you can use to move yourself around and you don't have to ask anybody permission uh to to use it um the only kind of constraint on your ability to go different places in it is where there are roads uh and they don't close the roads at any sort of set time you know trains are are, are, are a very, you know, 19th century European piece of technology. Obviously, we had trains here in the 19th century, too. But, but it's, you know, it's sort of, um, there's a bureaucratic committee that, uh, you know, runs the trains and, and puts them certain places and not others and runs them at certain times and not others and checks your ticket. And, um, uh, you know, it's just not something that, that, that California, that, well, Californians, yes, but Americans, too, in general. Um, uh, really, really are, are, are uh, sort of programmed to like quite as much. Uh, so I think I think getting rid of the car is going to be an uphill battle. Um, and um, you know, frankly, I, again, I would I think it's I think it would be pleasant if we had a couple more trains. And I think I think especially with the like absurd budget uh, surplus that that California has and is going to spend on on everything except the uh, the train. Uh, I, th- I think we could we could we could do that and it would it would be fine. Um, but in general, it just seems much more likely to me that the way, uh, you know, kind of American, um, you know, transportation will change in coming decades. It's, we're, we're much more likely to be living in a um, electric car world than, a, you know, a world in which all of America looks like uh, the Acela corridor. God help me. I was just on the Acela. What a nightmare that thing is also. I mean, can't even pull that one off, right? Oh, so so on on atomizing, um, the, you had another really excellent piece in uh, American Affairs. Uh, how recently did that come out, Nick? That was like... Uh, it was in May. Recent, in any case. It was in May. Uh, it was about the university. Um, I I just read it before we we, uh, we started recording, and it's... It's it's a really ambitious attempt to try and sort of, I, I think, wrap uh, our heads around like what's going on or gone wrong at the university. Um, but, but there also, I think there's this dynamic that we we're just sketching out here about how, you know, uh, there, there's, you know, a lot of what stands in for the modern American university is, is imported from Europe and actually as traces its way to sort of medieval institutions and this how these like medieval traditions are somehow shaping and in fact informing the kind of political impulses of um, um, the modern university that breeds kind of wokeness and and stuff like that. It's just interesting though that that I mean I don't know maybe maybe talk a little bit about um, atomization and community and how you see that. I, it's one thing that sort of comes out in the in that essay. Um, is 
I mean, your criticism is, I think, there that 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 the university in some ways is not reflective of America and this American sort of drive to democracy and is somehow stultified in the European model. I, I know that's 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 flattening the essay too much. It's much richer than that. But I don't know. Is there something to that also that the sort of I don't know, the European influence here is, again, maladapted and, and being twisted uh in this sort of modern American context? Yeah, I think that's that's basically my view. Um, yeah, the piece I try to trace the history of the university from its medieval origins um, through uh, German reforms in the 19th century that basically kind of created the model of the modern research university um, to the contemporary American university. I think a lot of people don't understand that the modern American university is based on German models. I, everyone sort of in... Um, you know, everyone who's sort of in the field of the history of the university, which is a surprisingly small field, by the way, um, not very many academics um, write books, especially not for general audiences, about the history of the university. And when they do, it's kind of hagiographic hey, studies of their university frequently. Uh, I, I think that's but, no but, coincidence. But but I but Nick, why 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 is wokeness not not like so? It's it's that perversion of importing Europe into America again to boil down the, exactly. the piece too much. But it's it's in, the perversion of importing a uh, a European model that like perhaps high speed trains works in Europe, but doesn't necessarily apply to us. But somehow it breeds this this kind of wokeness culture that that doesn't manifest in Europe necessarily in the same sort of way, even though there we are exporting wokeness to them and it's getting there. It, it wasn't born in European universities. What, what's, how, 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 what's that about? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a complicated thing, but I, that, that is basically kind of the theory that I came to is that, um, um, you know, the car is a very American piece of technology uh, and the university, uh, which in a way is also a piece of technology, also a form of political organization. Um, is not, to my view, um, really uh, a very American thing. And it's, it's been it's been adapted very successfully to the American context. And there are elements of it that do make sense, um, like uh, um, uh, the way that universities function as kind of self-contained communities um, that are, uh, you know, quite. Uh, despite a lot of universities' rhetoric about, you know, sort of having democratic values or doing community outreach or whatever, they're, they're quite, um, you know, dramatically set off from their surrounding communities. Um, and it's, it's, very it's very noticeable. Obviously, in rural universities, it look like monasteries, suburban universities um, that, uh, you know, you can even sort of see from a plane are very different from their surroundings. And urban universities where, You've got these security guards, you know, guarding the entrance, you know, uh, lest any sort of, uh, you know, person, you know, dweller of, of, of the inner city, uh, you know, enter these, these hallowed gates. Um, but I think the, and, you know, having, having sort of, um, communities with, with very intense beliefs within their ranks that, uh, don't look, uh, kindly on outsiders is obviously a, a kind of American tradition too. A religious American tradition. Um, you think of, it, uh, I don't know, Mennonites or something. Uh, and in some way, like, uh, you know, people in the American university today are not infinitely unlike uh, Mennonites. But, yeah, the, but in another the university way... university is basically like an intentional community. I mean, when I think oh, now yes. about Rod, Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option, where he talks about Christian um, intentional communities, but we don't tend to think of the university and the campus as a kind of liberal intentional community, but in some ways it is that. And I like how in, in your essay, yeah, yeah. And in your essay, I like that you make the point that, you know, when, when a growing number of Americans spend time on a campus for four years, they learn habits that are actually quite contrary to broader society. So for example, if you, in most university, most universities are walkable, so then they 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 leave the university and they find out that most of America is not walkable. Then you need you need a car basically. But there's a number of examples like that. That and I think you use the word deform. That in some ways the university deforms young Americans and doesn't put them in good stead for the outside world. 
That is, yeah, that's that's the sense I have, and that that has a lot to do, I think, too, with um, you know the demands that people have for European style high speed trains um, and walkable communities. Um, I, you know, there's a frequent there's a frequent remark that you hear on Twitter that Americans love college so much because it's the one time that they have walkable communities. Uh, but I think in some ways it, the opposite is actually true. It's that, you know, a certain kind of college educated, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of Yimby, um, uh, Twitter Define user Yimby wants, for our uninitiated oh, it's, um, people. It's, it's, it's yes in my backyard. Um, people who, uh, as opposed to NIMBY, right? As opposed right? to not in my backyard or NIMBY, basically people who are very um, kind of active proponents of um, of densification and mixed use um, uh, sort of uh, zoning and reforms to zoning, making zoning less restrictive so you can build, uh, you know, commercial build com- commercial buildings and residential buildings in the same area and. Um, it's it's a kind of um, uh, it's a kind of group of people who think that they've found kind of the the nail uh, a hammer that uh, that can sort of um, pound down all the nails of uh, uh, of the representing the problems of uh, American cities. But but I think a lot of these these people it's sort of the opposite. It's um, it's that they want walkable communities because they went to college um, and after living. For four years, or you know, if you went to grad school, maybe uh, ten years, and uh, you know, in a <laughs> which is a long time, in a place that's basically structured radically different differently from the society that you're going to spend the rest of your life in, uh, you know, where you, most places you need a car to get around, um, you're going to be kind of alienated and, and think that the society should should change. Um, but I'm not convinced that a lot of people. Um, who uh, you know live the way that most Americans live uh, want it to change. I think a lot of Americans who live in suburbs like living in suburbs, um, especially if they haven't been to college. Um, in which case, they haven't um, you know they haven't spent formative years in a place that's structured very differently. That's that's just the way things are to um, a lot of people in this country, and I think a lot of people don't feel like there's a, a huge problem with that that needs to be corrected yeah let's be on you know so, the, Sha- Sha- let, if, let me press you really quickly shoddy on this one thing though because i think you just ra- raised something really interesting uh you've always been sympathetic to rod dreher's intentional communities but i think we're concluding here that this is profoundly un-american okay it's an interesting <laughs> point actually why do i why do yeah. i sympathize with one intentional community and not the other i guess um uh well universities Universities aren't, first of all, they're not permanent intentional communities. I mean, people aren't raising families for the most part. And it, so it's a temporary, it's, I, I feel like the fact that, yeah, students, yeah. The yeah. fact that one is temporary and one is meant to be a lasting community that one builds and you set different foundations and then you stick to those foundations. I think Americans should be able to do that. But when it's done, but do we really need, I don't know how many universities are in America, probably, th- you know, thousands. Do we really need thousands of these f- intentional communities that have hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people in them? Do we really need that? And what purpose is it serving? Where I think if you're part of a, a vaguely religious, a, a somewhat persecuted religious group, not to say that Christian conservatives are persecuted, but they are in some sense strangers to mainstream culture and are not allowed entry into mainstream culture as defined by liberal elites. So they need to develop alternative institutions. I'm not sure what the argument is for liberals developing alternative institutions for themselves when they themselves dominate the culture. Yeah. So here's, here's, here's the interesting thing. Let me, let me ask you, Nick, this, but I I think here, here's one way to think about it. As a, you know, I, I'm just not a fan of, of, of very broadly a lot of this kind of, uh, um, you know, whatever this, this kind of, a lot of these trends on the right now about, you know, rediscovering. I think there's, there's always been a conservative tendency to try and sort of like recapture some kind of America that was. And I think that's what's behind Rod Dreher's, uh, intentional communities as well. It's like America as we know it is, 
is in fact is like gone. It's being destroyed, as you said, Shadi, by, you know, liberal institutions that are dominating and we're excluded from them. We need to rebuild something. But I think, again, going back to your essay, Nick, about America as it is, as a sort of like restless churning thing, I think it, it, it ultimately the, the truth of America is that the churn isn't just in New York City. It's, as you said yourself, New York City is not is not the whole country. And and in fact, the churn permeates all of America, even quote unquote real America. And, you know, it's 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 that 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 restlessness is everywhere. There's space that you can still do your own thing. And, and you know, in that sense, whatever, like if 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 Rod wants to go build a, a commune somewhere and, you know, that that's also very American. But at the same time, it's 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 not there's something quintessentially American about exposing yourself to that churn wherever it is, whether it's cultural churn and this kind of like, you know, high elite kind of stuff and slumming it like they do in New York or whether it's you know living in 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 the heartland elsewhere where there's constant turmoil constant turnover constant change communities rise and die uh suburbs new new uh, waves of uh immigrants or migrants from other parts of the country come in and transform communities there's something there's something un-American about a certain kind of conservatism that wants to preserve something that may never have really existed i guess is my sort of right. instinct against Rod and those people. Well, I don't know, Nick. What well, do you think? to get back to the difference or potential difference between um, the university and other forms of intentional communities, I think uh, a lot of what you've said applies to that in a way. Um, that um, you know, religious communities in America have a similar logic to capitalism in America. They, you know, they have to draw adherents um, and grow uh, constantly, or else they'll kind of be extinguished. So there's a kind of restlessness there too. Um, but the university. Um, you know, uh, has a kind of a different logic. It, you know, its medieval origins kind of lead it toward um, an attitude that's more uh, kind of taking a distance from the world. It's sort of a, you know, it has still something of its monastic origins, you know, like a, a kind of stable refuge from the world, um, a kind of quiet place where you can contemplate um, and also, you know, one where if you're a tenured professor, you have complete, uh, you know, uh, job security for life. It's, uh, uh, it's a place that awards privileges um, in the original kind of medieval sense. And it's also a place that is p internally politically organized hierarchically, unlike, you know, unlike American society, um, which is, you know, at least supposed to be um, egalitarian and democratic, um, and representative, um, I guess, uh, um, at the very least representative, but, but universities aren't representative and they're not egalitarian. You have students and they're governed by people who aren't students. They're not, you know, you're not governed, um, by representatives drawn from among your, uh, you, you know, from, from among people, you're governed by a distinct body, uh, you know, the, the, the university administration, and um, there are also gradations among graduate students, professors, you know, assistant professor, associate professor, tenure, chairs. There's, there's unlimited numbers of gradations of rank, which are, you know, obviously medieval and um, are, you know, very different from the kind of um, uh, from the way that the rest of American society is set up, where even when we do have inequalities and we certainly do. We try to mask them. We try to um, give people titles that don't show that they actually have power over other people. Um, we try to downplay it. The university doesn't try to downplay that. And I think that the problem, the, the thing that originates all the distortions that I try to talk about in this essay um, is that, uh, you know, people in the university, um, academics um, especially, have this kind of... Uh, this kind of parrot, they're kind of facing this paradox where the institutional structure around them um, uh, is, is hierarchical and it's set off from society. Um, it's, it's, it's geared in this kind of contemplative monastic direction, but they're Americans. Um, and so they have these egalitarian instincts and they have this rest, they have these restless instincts. And so um, in some way, like the, the university is a place where, uh, people have, you know, acquire some kind of cognitive dissonance. And um, it's, it's the attempt to kind of reckon with that to, 
be an American Democrat and to have liberal values in a place that's very hierarchical and very shut off from society uh, that introduces the kind of, um, uh, you know, weird tensions and tendency to kind of um, uh, kind of think in, in, in strange ways that, that leads to, you know, wokeism and, and all the rest of it. So, um, so, Nick, you would draw direct. So I was about to ask you this. I mean, that because one of the reasons that wokeness seems to be so compelling to folks who teach on campuses or live on campus is is because to talk about the lack of equality and the fact that the university is hierarchical and is determined by privilege would lead to a reckoning with the actual base structures of the university and to instead focus on diversity um, and then have all these DEI institutions at universities, diversity, what is it? Diversity, diversity, equity, Equity and and inclusion. inclusion. Yeah. I mean, wokeness is a way to distract from structural problems. And I, you know, I think that um, Sam Hasselby makes this argument a lot on Twitter um, that if love that if, guy, yeah, yeah, he's great. That if you really wanted to have, if these people were actual leftists, they would be focusing on the structure of the university, but they don't. So, do right. you, you draw that? Do you feel like that that is very much a direct link? Obviously, people aren't thinking about it in that way consciously, but in some ways, they're channeled in that direction. Yeah, I think so. I mean the. Um, the tendency to um, uh, to conceive of uh, social justice in terms of a the internal makeup of these organizations, right? Um, uh, what I mean, it's kind of like visual representation or something. It's like um, uh, the idea that uh, how you know um, egalitarian an institution is depends on um, demographic facts about its members and not its relationship to society or its internal political organization. Um, that's, that's definitely a consequence of this, of this paradox. Um, and, and another consequence is, is the tendency to focus on, on language, right. Um, rather than on kind of, uh, material things, um, the focus on, on terms, uh, you know, use, there's a great uh, piece, um, which which I thought was extremely kind of cautious and treading on eggshells um, to make its point, which I thought was sort of obviously true, but it's still... S- Sam Adler Bell's know, piece? Exactly, yes. It, it's still, in, in, it provoked, the, you know, a furious response from, uh, mostly from professors, which I think uh, also proves, <laughs> proves the point. I mean, with the point, of course, is that... Um, you know, people in the university, um, uh, you know, get very uh, worked up about people in the university, people who have been educated in the university on the left get very worked up about uh, language and terms. Um, and um, this can get in the way of uh, crafting uh, appeals to a broader range of people. And more seriously, even than that, it, it, it really keeps people from from thinking about um, material conditions. Uh, which, which, you know, if you're concerned about social justice should be, should be your number one concern. That's it for part one. If you're not a paying subscriber, join us at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and get access to part two of the conversation, where we turn the discussion to problems with foreign policy realism. Stick around for me and Shadi going at it over human rights with poor Nick Burns caught in the middle. Hope to see you in the bonus. 